Today I'm going to be reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, 1 through 8. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make the paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river, Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Well, good morning again, uh, everyone. Um, As Janelle just read, uh, this morning we are Looking at the Gospel of Mark, the beginning of it, Uh, we are going to be in Mark for several months, uh, and uh, we're going to be following um, this Gospel, looking at uh, John's account, John Mark's account uh, of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And last week we began this series, we began by looking uh, at the book of Mark as a whole. We, we were familiarizing ourselves kind of with the structure of this book and some of the primary themes that we're going to see come up time and time again in this book. And as we explored this book last week, one of the things that we saw is that Mark writes this book to answer two questions, two questions that were deeply on the minds of the early church, uh, very important for them, uh, very important for us today as well. And those questions were, first, who is Jesus? And then once we answer that question, the second question is, what does that mean? What does that mean for us when we discover who this Jesus is. And so as we look at this book, we're going to discover countless times that Mark is making claims of who Jesus is, that Jesus is the king, that Jesus is Israel's long-awaited Messiah, but he is not just the king, he is also the king who goes to the cross. The key to Jesus delivering his people, being crowned as the king of his people, is found on the cross. And so, as his disciples, we follow in his footsteps, we follow in the same path, and that is a path that leads to the cross. And this morning, as as we just read, we look at the the prologue of this book, the first eight verses, and we are, uh, it's probably one that you are familiar with. It is one that introduces us to John the Baptist, Uh, but even as it is about John the Baptist, it's a story that's really ultimately about Jesus. We'll see that John the Baptist is just a herald. He's just a forerunner for the coming king, announcing the king who is to come. See, Mark begins his gospel with a a way that we may be familiar with. Uh, He does not begin it with uh, uh, the account of Jesus' birth like Matthew does or like Luke does. He does not begin with a preexistent Christ like the gospel of John does, but instead he actually begins with the Old Testament. He begins by quoting a couple passages from the Old Testament that hopefully provide us with the lens 
for which we can understand the rest of his book, understand the rest of what he is trying to uh, get across to us as we look at this book. And as we are going to see, this book, uh, this text that, that deals with John the Baptist is ultimately one that is about who Jesus is and is asking us if we are ready for his coming. And so this morning, as we look at these eight verses, I want us to do it just in three short parts. First, I want us to look at the arrival of the king. Then I want us to look at the herald of the king. And then finally, to look at the work of this coming king. Let's pray once more as we approach God's word. Holy God, as we uh, open your word this morning, uh, we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would come. Holy Spirit, that you would be the ones who would speak to us, that you would be at work in our hearts, you would be at work in our minds, that you would be the one who turns our affections and our desires to more greatly love and desire you. And God, as we encounter Jesus in these verses, we do ask that you would prepare our hearts for the return of the Lord, even as you used and called John to do thousands of years ago. And so God, as we uh, approach this word, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear what your spirit has to say to your church. Speak, Lord, for your church is eager to hear. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, first, let's look and consider the arrival of the king. It's found in verses 1 through 3. Remember, this is the lens for which we can interpret the entire book of Mark. So hear these words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, as I mentioned a few moments ago, these verses are, are so important for us because they help us to understand the rest of the book of Mark. And like so many ancient writers, Mark actually gives us his purpose statement right at the beginning of the gospel. Right at the beginning of his work, he tells us, this is why I am writing. This is what I'm trying to accomplish as I write. And so notice a few key words, even from the first verse of Mark chapter 1. First, Mark describes this book as a gospel. Now, many of us are familiar with the word gospel. We likely know what the word gospel means. Gospel simply means good news. But it was very uncommon. In fact, it was unheard of until Mark writes this book for a book to be called a gospel. This is a word that Mark takes. It does not have its origins among Christians. He, he uses it. He co-ops it with uh, a bit of history and a bit of baggage uh, along with this word. This word gospel was heavily used by both pagans and Jews before Christians started to use it, starting with Mark here. For Romans, this word gospel was oftentimes used to celebrate the birth of the emperor. It was used to celebrate the, the coronation or the crowning of the emperor. It was considered to be good news when an emperor was born. It was considered to be good news when an emperor became the king. And so this, this gospel of the emperor, this gospel of the Caesar was something that was celebrated. It was celebrated by the entire empire because it signaled the arrival of a new era, a new kingdom was coming. This king, Caesar, was celebrated because his rule would bring in, would usher in a new state of affairs for the world. And so when, when Mark uses this word gospel, he has that at the back of his mind. But he doesn't just have that. Jews also use the word gospel frequently. In the Old Testament, the word gospel oftentimes was used to refer to the good news of God's plan to save 
his people, to restore his people, to rule amongst them once more. And so in Isaiah 52, a text that you are likely familiar with quoted in the book of Romans, Isaiah 52 says this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news to Jerusalem, of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. What Isaiah is saying here is how beautiful are the feet of him who brings the gospel. And what is that gospel? Well, the gospel is the pronouncement. It is the declaration that God will come to save his people, that God still reigns, that God will establish his kingdom in, uh, in Jerusalem, in Israel, his kingdom on earth once Again, And so as we start the book of Mark, it is important for us to recognize what Mark is doing when he uses this word gospel. He's using the background of the Roman Empire, this celebration, this good news of a new king who has come and is taking his throne, but also this good news of a God who still saves his people. A God who still reigns, a God who will deliver his people, and a God who will establish his kingdom on the earth once more. Now, last week, we also looked at two other uh, words, key words that were used at the beginning of Mark in verse 1. Mark refers to Jesus as the Christ, and he refers to Jesus as the Son of God. And we saw last week that in, in Mark chapter 8 and in Mark chapter 15, these two titles come up again. And they are the two most important, important moments of the book. In Mark chapter 8, we come to this conclusion when we're asking the question, who is Jesus? Peter confesses, you are the Christ. It is the culmination of the first half of the book. But then we ask the question, well, what does that mean? In the second half of the book, it culminates with the words of a pagan centurion as he's watching Jesus die on the, Christ, uh, on the cross, say, surely this man was the Son of God. Mark begins right here in verse 1 by telling us the answer to the questions he's going to ask, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the King, he is the long-awaited Messiah, and that he is the Son of God. Mark begins his gospel with his packed declaration. It is not one that we can ignore. It's not one that we can pass over. See, Mark refuses, as we read, to, as we read this book, he refuses to allow us to be neutral. When we ask the question, when we are asked the question, who is Jesus? When we're asked the question, do we believe that he is the Christ? Do we believe that he is the Son of God? He is forcing us to answer yes or no. As he asks the question, or as he declares that this is good news, that this is gospel, we have to ask, is this really gospel? Is this really good news for us? And the answer, of course, says, well, it all depends on whether we are part of his kingdom. After all, in, in the Roman vein of this word gospel, this good news of a, of a new king ascending to the throne, it was only good news for those who were in the Roman Empire. It was not good news for those who were enemies of the Roman Empire. And so as Mark begins this book, he asks us, is this good news for us? The arrival of a new king is a dividing line that crosses through the, the hearts of every single person who has ever lived and who will ever live. Mark declares that Jesus is the Christ. Is that good news for you? How will you respond? That's all in verse 1. 
And Mark continues to provide us with the, the proper perspective for interpreting the entire gospel by, by giving us a, a couple of verses from the Old Testament uh, in verses two and three. It says this, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Mark begins his gospel, and he begins by saying that he's about to quote Isaiah, and then, probably surprising to us, he quotes Isaiah, but he also quotes Exodus, and he also quotes Malachi, two other Old Testament books, uh, and we'll come, come back to that here in a second. Now, more, more critical readers of the gospels will say that this is a reason to, to say that the gospels are not genuine, that, that Mark actually makes a mistake here. He says, I'm going to quote from Isaiah, and then all of a sudden he starts quoting from Malachi and Exodus before he gets to Isaiah. And to our modern ears that are very hypersensitive to the idea of plagiarism, uh, of misquoting people, this is a big deal to us. And yet what Mark is doing from an ancient perspective is, is something that's relatively common. If you were quoting multiple sources, you, you, you were able to take liberty with those sources, that you were able to mix them together as long as you quoted the most relevant for your purpose. And that's exactly what Mark is doing here. What's more important, perhaps, though, is as he's mixing this together, he's actually providing us with a, with a great way to understand the work of John the Baptist, and more importantly, the work of Jesus himself. So to understand this, to grasp this, we have to understand the, the, the Old Testament background, the events uh, behind his quotations here from Exodus, from Malachi, and from Isaiah. Starting with Exodus, the people of Israel, of course, were, were slaves in Egypt for about 400 years, but God had a plan to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians from their oppressors, and sure enough, God shows up in a great and a mighty way. He, he shows his power. He delivers Israel uh, the, from the most powerful nation on the planet at that time, and he brings them into the promised land. And, and as they're about to enter the promised land, uh, Moses, he's, he's looking at the promised land and he basically sums up God at work for his people when he says this in Deuteronomy. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. God saves his people and he's bringing them into the promised land. And, and as they're about to, to enter the promised land, God uh, has, has Moses look back on what's taken place up to this point. He looks back on, on the fact that God has delivered them through the Red Sea, that he parts the waters of the Red Sea and allows them to pass through on dry land. And then from there, they spend 40 years in the wilderness where they're daily sustained by God. And it is here, this people that has already been saved by God from the Egyptians, God has already delivered them from the oppressors, that God makes a covenant with them. And God gives them commandments, which we looked at this past summer as we went through the, the Ten Commandments. And this deliverance and this time in the wilderness is known in the rest of the Old Testament as the Exodus. And it's the most important time for the people of Israel, for Old Testament believers. They looked back with, with fond memories to this time when, when God delivered them from Egypt, when they lived in the wilderness, when God daily sustained them, when God was providing for them. And they looked at his salvation in that time as the clearest display of God's power the clearest display of God's love for his people. And all of that is integral, 
It's, it's so crucial for us to understand when we look at the gospel of Mark, this moment that was a defining moment in the history of Israel. But of course, as we are, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the, the things don't stay that way. The, the people of Israel, they disobey God time and time and time again throughout the Old Testament. It leads actually to their the eventual destruction as a nation. The prophets, God sends prophet after prophet time and time again to tell them to repent, to tell them to return to God. It says, if you don't turn around, if you don't repent, there is destruction waiting for you. But Israel does not listen, and so they are brought into exile. We looked at this exile last month as we were looking at the book of Habakkuk at both of our locations. But significantly, before they are sent into exile, before Israel is completely destroyed, God sends a prophet named Isaiah. And Isaiah looks forward to the future, and he says that, you know what, even though there is an exile coming, even though there is a destruction of our nation coming, that will not have the final say, that God will actually deliver us from that exile, the exile that hasn't even happened yet. That's not going to be the final word. God is going to deliver us from that, and the fact, in fact, the last chunk, the last big section of Isaiah it is all about this future deliverance of Israel, this promise and this assurance to Israel that even though they will face exile, God will have the final word, that God will one day save them again. And, and from, from the perspective of Old Testament believers, they actually began to look at this, and, and it's a, a common term that's used uh, in, in, uh, in, in the book of Isaiah. It's this, this idea of a new exodus. The people of Israel have this hope this longing that even as they're about to face exile, even as they're about to face judgment, that God is going to deliver them in the exact same way, in a, in a wonderfully powerful way, just like God delivered them from Egypt centuries before. They long for this new exodus. And Isaiah 40 through 55, it's all about this new exodus. It's all about this promise that God is going to save them. God is going to deliver them, and he's going to restore them in the exact same way that he did in the time of Moses. And, and yet, if you look at the accounts of what takes place, it doesn't actually happen. Hear these words from the book of Isaiah. Chapter 40, this is a, a powerful promise uh, that God makes to Israel of what is to come. The second exodus, this longing that is on the hearts of every single person in the Old Testament who was a believer. Hear these words from Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord, from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tender his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. 
This is the longing of every single person in the Old Testament as they're facing judgment, as they're facing hardship. They, they look forward to this promise in Isaiah of a new exodus, of a day of future deliverance when God will, will take care of them. And this is what is written about off and on for 15 chapters in Isaiah. And they become the foundational hope for the believers of the Old Testament while they are in exile. And sure enough, just as God promises, the people of Israel are brought back from exile. They come back to the promised land. And yet when they come back to the promised land, what takes place is, is not this beautiful picture from Isaiah, but it's almost a, a miserable existence. It's this miserable existence for the people of Israel. They're still ruled by the people of Persia. The, the temple is small. The temple is insignificant. Corruption reigns supreme, even in the priesthood. And because of that, complacency and dead religion creep in to this people that are just as far from God as they were before the exile. And they begin to wonder, why has God not kept his promises to us? And in the midst of this discouragement, in, this midst of, in the midst of this complacent spirituality, God sends another prophet, the last prophet of the Old Testament, the last prophet before John the Baptist. His name is Malachi. And Malachi uh, assures the people that this new exodus, this great longing for God to come and establish his kingdom, to come and deliver his people, is still coming. Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare, prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi, he's looking back on this exile and, and what the people thought was going to be this restoration, which wasn't really a restoration at all. And he says this final and this complete deliverance for God's people that you are longing for, it is still coming. But Malachi also gives a warning says, don't just assume that God coming, God's return, is going to be a good thing if you are not prepared. The coming of the Lord will not be deliverance, but it will be judgment for those who are not ready, for those who are unrepentant, for those who are lukewarm. Mal Malachi chapter 3 verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Malachi tells us and reminds us that the Lord's coming may indeed be good news, but it is only good news for those who are prepared, those who have repented, those who trust in the Lord, those who rely upon the Lord for deliverance, and the rest will be burned up like fire. Now, maybe you can see where Mark is going here. When Mark quotes these texts, he quotes from Exodus 23, he quotes from Malachi chapter 3, he quotes from Isaiah 40, and we read a couple of those verses, if you notice those in the text we read. What is Mark doing as he mixes these quotations together? Mark is doing something really powerful here. He's saying something about the coming of Jesus. He's, he's making this astounding declaration that, that the G, this, this, this future longing, this future deliverance that the people long for is going to be found in Jesus. That the promise that God's people long for will one day be fulfilled in this Jesus. That in fact, Jesus comes to fulfill God's promises. That Jesus comes to restore God's original creation. That, God, uh, that, that Jesus comes to actually make all things right. And Jesus is the one who will deliver his people. 
And so here, in just the first few verses of Mark chapter 1, we have this incredible good news, but it's also an extremely serious warning. Mark is saying, beware. Beware in case you are caught unprepared. The the gospel of Mark, this good news of Mark, is, is only good news for those who are a part of God's kingdom. That's what these first few verses teach us if we were to sum it up. The arrival of the king is good news for those who are ready. The arrival of the the king is good news for those who are ready. Mark tells anyone who would read, anyone who would hear, that the king has arrived, that this Jesus who comes is the king, and he is the one who comes to bring his kingdom. Are you ready? So Mark, one through three, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, they describe the, the arrival of this new king. And then verses 4 through 6 introduce us to the herald of this new king, John the Baptist. Consider these words. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Mark begins with this warning. Beware if you're not prepared. And indeed, if we're going to be honest with us, if God didn't give us a warning, how few of us would actually be ready. But God in his grace, God in his mercy, he actually sends someone to prepare the way, to get his people ready for the coming of the king. And he sends a herald, and his name is John the Baptist. John is the first prophet to appear to the people of Israel for nearly 400 years. After nearly 400 years of silence, we have John the Baptist. He comes as a prophet who is chosen by God from birth, and he calls the people of God into the wilderness. And he calls them into the wilderness to repent, and he calls them into the wilderness to be baptized. Now, these few verses, verses 4 through 6, they give us a glimpse at the purpose of John's ministry. John has a purpose that God has sent him for, and that is to prepare the people of God for the coming of God. God sends a forerunner, a herald, so that whoever would listen, whoever would heed these words and believe will be ready for his coming, for the coming of Jesus. John tells us to be prepared. But we might be asking, well, how exactly does John tell the people to be prepared for the coming of this king? Consider what the text tells us. First, he urges the people to repentance. He tells them to repent. Repentance at its most basic level means to stop where you're going, stop the direction you're going, and then just turn around. It is a decision to stop going down the path you are going and head in the opposite direction. Of course, it it assumes that you're headed for destruction and turn around and head toward life. Now, when I was in high school, I, uh, for some unknown reason, I ran cross-country. It was probably one of the foolish decisions I've ever made. Uh, I have no athletic ability whatsoever. And one of the things that I pride myself on is knowing my limits when I play sports. And so uh, if you ever watched one of our slow pitch softball games this summer, I was known for knowing my limits, uh, which still didn't work out too well. When I play pickup basketball, I I don't try to shoot the ball. Um, I just run up and down the court uh, because I know my limits. don't want to make myself uh, look like a fool. But here's the thing about cross country. Knowing your limits does no good. It will not prevent you from looking like a fool. 
Now, every year uh, down in Southwest Iowa, our first meet of the year would take place in the 90-degree heat. Uh, it would take place in the bluffs along the Missouri River, uh, very hilly course and had a lot of turns. And if you weren't paying attention, you could easily lose your way while you were running the race, especially if you were the back of the pack like me, when there weren't a lot of people uh, around you to follow. So my sophomore year, second year of running cross country, I'm running. I get tripped right before this intersection on the path. And there is a path that goes forward. There's a path that goes right. There's a path that goes left. And by the time I get up and look up, everyone around me is gone. Everyone is around me is gone. And so I look straight. I don't see anyone. I look to the right. Don't see anyone. Look left. Don't see anyone. And I have to make a decision. And so I decide I'm going to go left because that's the way the course went last year. And so I go that way, and I keep running for about five minutes, and I don't see anyone. I get really, really depressed because I'm realizing, man, I know I'm a bad runner. I didn't realize I was this bad that I can't find anyone. And so finally, I find someone, and I ask him, a spectator, I just say, hey, where is everyone? Where is everyone? And he says, what are you talking about? Well, I'm not really supposed to have a conversation right now. I'm in the middle of a race. And he's like, the race is a half a mile back that way. And he points me the other direction. And, and, and at that moment, I had a decision that I had to make. I could keep going the way I was going. I could do that. I would definitely never finish the race. I would most certainly get reprimanded by my coach. I would probably get lost forever in the woods of Southwest Iowa. To this point, I may actually still be there. Or I could repent. I could turn around, I could head back to the course, I could just face the music that I had gone the wrong way and repent. And to this day, I'll be honest, I wonder how much more enjoyable my life had been if I would have kept going, never, never returned to cross country, never, never gone that way again. The repentance is this fun, at, its, at, its, at its core is this idea of, of stopping the direction you're going and heading back the opposite way. Repentance was a fundamental piece of Judaism in the first century. The people of Israel were called to repent time and time again. If they were to receive God's mercy, they were first to repent of their wickedness and then cling to the mercy of God. And here is John, this prophet of God, this herald of the coming king, and he calls the people to repentance. He's the first prophet in 400 years, and the people respond in droves. They, they hear about this coming king and they respond by, by turning away from their wickedness and clinging to the promise of God's mercy. But here's the important thing. If we look at John's call to repentance, it's not repentance solely motivated on this misguided belief that if we repent, if we just turn our lives around, if we just right the ship, then God is going to accept us for our hard work that we can make ourselves right in God's eyes. Now, as we look at this text, it tells us that John's call to repentance is actually rooted in the deliverance that God is going to give us. That's the message, in fact, of these, first, of these next few verses of the herald. It is this, repentance is a response to the deliverance offered by the king. Repentance is a response to the deliverance offered by the coming king. Now, you may wonder exactly where I get that from these verses. Uh, let's consider a few things from this text. Have you ever wondered why John calls people into the wilderness? Why is it that John calls people into the wilderness? Why couldn't he just go to a city center? Why couldn't he go into the middle of the city and call people to be baptized there? Why is he calling people into the wilderness? 
It's because he's calling people into the wilderness in the exact same way that God brought the people into the wilderness during the time of the Exodus. Mark has already described that in verses 2 and 3 of how God calls his people into the wilderness, that God is going to take care and deliver his people through the wilderness. This is a subtle but powerful connection between the work of the the exodus that God worked for his people centuries before and the work of deliverance that God is going to bring for his people right now in this person, Jesus, on the cross. This is further emphasized in verse 5. Verse 5, it tells us that all Judea, all Jerusalem is going out to John in the wilderness. These people are heading out into the wilderness where they once met God. And they're expecting God to meet with them in the exact same way that the people went out from Egypt centuries before. But even more significantly is this symbol of baptism. John is just not, not just calling people to, to repent. He's also calling them to be baptized. To this point, baptism was a completely unheard of concept in Judaism. But here is John, this man who says, if you truly want to repent, if you truly want to cling to the mercy of God, you have to pass through the water. You have to pass through the waters of baptism, just like God's people passed through the waters of the Red Sea when they were delivered from Egypt. Mark is highlighting the importance and the necessity of God being at work for his people. God is the one who initiates deliverance for his people. And we cannot restore ourselves to God on our own, even through repentance, without God delivering us. But we can repent in faith. We can trust in the the work of God as a response to what God has done for us in Christ. And John is this voice, and he's in the wilderness, and he's crying out to people, repentance is a response to the deliverance that God is going to give you in this king. And this text tells us about the arrival of the king. It tells us about this herald of the king. And then finally, last few verses tell us a little bit more of the work of this king. If you notice, uh, compared to other Gospels, what Mark says about John the Baptist is surprisingly short. Luke gives us a little bit more of a glimpse at the content of John's teaching as he's calling out in the wilderness for these people to repent. It says this in Luke chapter 3, John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to him to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in, in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves... We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones, to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Mark doesn't mention any of that. All that Mark says, the only words of of John that matter to Mark are words that concern, that are focused on the work of the coming king. Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here's John, and he's describing this coming king, and he calls him the mighty one. It's language that we don't have time to go into, but it's language that is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to God. Especially in the book of Isaiah, it's referring to God as the mighty one, the one who will deliver his people 
John is not the king. He's only the messenger. He's only the forerunner. But he's saying that the the coming king, the one who comes after me, he is the one who has the power and the strength and the might to bring about a lasting deliverance for his people over sin and over evil forever. But more, more significantly, John gives us one more glimpse at this work of Jesus, the work of the king, when he declares that this Jesus, this king, will baptize people with the Holy Spirit. As we know from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon God's people after the work of Jesus on the cross. It says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Here we see that the Spirit, in Mark chapter 1, the Spirit is promised by Mark, but it cannot come without deliverance. And that deliverance cannot come without the cross, as we see from the book of Acts. This coming of the Spirit of God is a sign of God's presence at work in the last days, that God is bringing in the last days. Joel chapter 2, and it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall, see dream, shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Even here in the first few verses of his gospel, Mark is pointing to the cross. He is pointing to the cross by telling us that there is coming a king who will deliver his people. A king is coming who will bring in this new exodus, this new deliverance, and yet he will give it to us at great cost to himself. Indeed, these last two verses of today's text remind us that this new king will deliver his people into his kingdom. It is a word of assurance, it is a word of promise that this new king will not lose any of those who are his people. He will deliver all of them into his kingdom by laying down his life. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus is predicting his own death, and he tells us the reason why he came. Such a a powerful verse, it says this, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to be served. Or excuse me, not not to be served, but to serve and give his life for a ransom, as a ransom for many. The purpose Jesus came is to give his life as a ransom for many. Even as Paul writes in the book of Colossians, it says this, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is the foundational truth that John communicates as the herald of the coming king, as the the focus of his ministry, that the king is coming. The one who will save his people is coming. The one who will bring people into his kingdom is coming. John may not know specifically the name of that king until a few verses later, which we're going to look at last week, but he knows that that king is coming. And that king is the place where hope and good news and deliverance are found. And so as we close this morning, we just ask ourselves, how do we respond? After all, John the Baptist has come and gone. The way has been prepared. Jesus has come, the king has come, deliverance has been won on the cross. So what do we do as those who live on this side of the cross? The application of this text is easy if we were living with John the Baptist before Jesus had appeared. So how do we live as people who know who Jesus is? 
Mark, the way he writes, is forcing us thousands of years removed from the the ministry of John the Baptist to wrestle with the exact same question, to wrestle with the exact same question that the crowds of Jerusalem, the crowds of Judah in John's day had to face. Am I ready? Am I ready for the coming of the Messiah? Am I ready for the coming of the Lord? And as this text beautifully describes, the only way to prepare ourselves for the Lord's coming the, the surety of the Lord's coming is responding in repentance, but not in a repentance that, that is just on its own, that doesn't trust in God, that, that just says, I can make things up to God, but it is instead a repentance that is coupled with a faith and a trust that God, the Messiah, will deliver his people. And that's the message of this text. If we were to sum up this text in just one simple sentence, it would be this, prepare for the return of the Lord through repentance and faith. That's the message of John. It's the message of Mark in these first few verses. Prepare for the return of the Lord in repentance and faith. Christ has come. The deliverer has come. He has ushered in a new kingdom. He has granted his people deliverance, and he will come again. The question is, are you ready? Are you ready for the coming of the Lord? Are you able to confess that the message of John the Baptist is good news? This morning... That question is before each of us. And many of us, praise God, can answer yes by God's grace. Yes, I am ready for God's return, not because of what I have done, but because of what Jesus has done for me, the deliverance he has given to me on the cross. And that's a point worth rejoicing over. It is a point worth rejoicing over. It is a point to worship. It is a point to to adore God for, for what he has done in orchestrating your deliverance. It is a response of repentance, to, to continue to repent of the areas of our lives that, that we, uh, we struggle with, with sin continually, to, to give those over to God is a, is a response of, of faith and worship and repentance. But maybe some of us here this morning, we hear the words of this text and we say, I don't know if I'm ready. The, the coming of the Lord, it might be good news. It might not be good news for me. I just don't know. There's this uncertainty about whether this is good news because you don't know if you've trusted in the deliverance that Christ offers to his people, the the deliverance that that Christ has won for us on the cross. And that's you this morning. The response to this text is the most important response you could ever make in your life. It's the most important thing you could do in your life. It is a call, as Jesus says a few verses later in Mark chapter one. Jesus says this, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. See, Jesus actually is kind of saying the exact same thing that Mark says. He just explains it a little better. Time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come. Repent. But more importantly, repent and believe the gospel. The same is true for us today. The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. The calling for each of us is to repent. It is to believe in the gospel. It is time for us to trust in the good news of what Christ has done. And here in, this, here in a moment, I'm going to pray. And if that's something you've never done before, I invite you to to pray along, to trust in the deliverance of what Christ has has won for us on the the cross, something that God gives to us each freely without price. Prepare yourself for the return of the Lord through repentance and faith. The Lord has come. He will come again. And as we close, just hear these words of assurance. They're words we've already read from the book of Isaiah, a, a future look at the beautiful gift of deliverance that God gives to his people when he comes to establish his kingdom, when he returns 
what God will do for his people. It says this in Isaiah. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. How will you respond? Let's pray. Lord, as we hear the call of the gospel, a call to repent and believe the good news. We just, we we rejoice that in your mercy, you give us a warning. That you did not need to prepare the way for the Lord. And yet in your grace and your love, you do just that. And so, God, for, for those of us this morning who have placed our, our faith and our trust in you, God, we ask that this would just spur us on to, to greater repentance, greater love, greater desire to serve and honor you. And God, for those of us here this morning that maybe have never trusted in you, God, I just ask that, that we would turn our hearts to you, that we would look to you in faith, trusting that even as you delivered the Israelites, through the Red Sea. There is nothing that we could do to deliver ourselves, and so we have to cling to the deliverance you give us on the cross, to trust that you will keep your promises, that you will deliver us. And so, God, I just pray that if there's anyone here this morning that that needs to hear those words, God, that you would lead them to faith, that they would confess in you a great need for you and that they would repent, that they would turn from their wickedness and that they would trust in you because you're a good God. You're a faithful God, a God who loves us and it is truly good news that you have come and that you are coming again. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.